The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, now we are going to have a look at the fourth noble truth. Yeah, finally. <laughs> so this is where the real action is uh, about how to, uh, what to do, and how to practice, and. Uh, uh, again, we're going to very very briefly, it has the uh, fourth noble truth there, as it is explained in the uh, Dhammachakka Pavattana Sutta. And uh, so this is just a standard explanation of the, the path. Yeah. So now this is the noble truth of the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering here. It is simply this noble eightfold path, that is right view, right purpose or aim or thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right immersion or right samadhi. That is the Noble Eightfold Path. So uh, this uh, Noble Eightfold Path is uh, uh, almost a large part of the suttas are really about uh, the practice of the Dhamma. Yeah, the uh, uh, the whole Mahavagga, the last part of the Sangyutta Nikaya, are about that. Uh, a lot of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, middle-length sayings, are about that. So uh, you can say the majority of the suttas really are about the practice. Uh, so this Noble Eightfold Path can be uh, kind of pulled apart, uh, and you can insert other suttas in there, uh, and you can, uh, uh, you know, you can divide it up, and you can look at it from many, many different angles. Uh, so it's a, there's a lot of information about this path. It looks very simple when you see just the eight factors, but actually to understand them fully, what they mean, uh, it takes a lot of explanation, and that's why there are so many suttas. So uh, I'm not going to say maybe too much more about the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, except that to remember that it is a, a gradual path. You start at the beginning, uh, and each factor conditions the next one. Uh, yeah, There's a natural sequence here, uh, uh, which goes from the beginning and then goes to the very end. And everything in the Dhamma is like that. Uh, everything has natural sequences. Uh, um, you know, whenever you see any kind of uh, grouping uh, in the Dhamma, you see the five khandhas, uh, the five hindrances, uh, whatever it is, uh, all of these groups have a sequence. The sequence is not arbitrary. Uh, the sequence is purposeful. Uh, and you can, uh, you, you know, you can read if you understand it properly, you understand why the sequence is the way it is. And the same is true here for the Noble Eightfold Path, of course. So I will just leave it at that, and I will move on to this next sutta. Otherwise, you won't have time to look at everything. And this is called, next sutta is called the Chanki Sutta, from the Middleng Sangs number 95. And this is about this Brahmin called Chanki, who goes to visit the Buddha. <coughs> and um, then this is what happens when they, uh, when they meet each other. So um, it starts out, and it is kind of uh, at the very, as usual. Uh, uh, thus have I heard, this is a Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation here. On one occasion, the Blessed One was wandering in the Korsalan country uh, with a large Sangha of bhikkhus, of monks. Uh, and eventually he arrived at the Korsalan Brahmin village named Opasada. There the Blessed One stayed in the God's Grove, uh, the Deva Vana, 
the Sala tree grove to the north of Opasada. So uh, this is, uh, uh, if you like, from the early days of the Buddha's uh, life when he was wandering around a lot. Uh, and one of the places that he was wandering around is this country called the Kosala country, uh, where King Pasenadi was the king. Uh, and uh, and of course, there were many little settlements and villages and towns in this country. These countries, by the way, are quite large. They are large countries. If you see maps of something like the Kosalan country, it would be probably maybe the size of Victoria or something like that. Yeah, uh, Victoria might not be particularly large in Australia, but in, in you know in kind of international context, they're still quite large. Uh, Victoria, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe yeah, half the size of New South Wales, uh, roughly the size of Victoria, something like that. Yeah, it's hard to really pin it down exactly, but uh, this is what large countries. Uh, uh, so uh, that's where he arrives. Uh. Now, on that occasion, the Brahmin Chanki was ruling over Upasada, a crown property abounding in living beings, uh, rich in grasslands, woodlands, waterways, and grain. Uh, a royal endowment, a sacred grant given to him by King Pasenadi of Kosalaha. The Brahmins were often given special properties by the king, yeah, because they had a special place in uh, that uh, ancient Indian society, Brahmanical society here. The Brahmin householders of Opasada heard the recluse Gotama, the son of the Sakyans who went forth from the Sakyan clan, uh, has been wandering in the country of the Videhans with a large Sangha of bhikkhus, uh, with 500 monks. Now a good report of Master Gotama has been spread to this effect. The Blessed One is accomplished, fully enlightened or awakened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime knower of the world, incomparable leader of tameable people, teacher of gods and humans, awakened and blessed. So this is uh, the kind of standard description of the Buddha in the suttas. And many of you will know straight away, this is exactly what we were chanting this morning, we've been chanting every morning, Itipiso Bhagava Arahang, Samma Sambuddho, Vidja, Chadana Sampanno, etc. That's that one there. yeah. And this is always the description of the Buddha in the suttas. So if you want to uh, do that uh, Buddha Nusati, the recollection of the Buddha. It is uh, good to know what these things mean. Yeah, it kind of gives extra uh, oomph to that kind of reflection if you know the meaning behind these things. Uh, and uh, this, this is a very interesting, and often I I like to talk about this at length uh, sometimes at retreats. I'm not going to do it now because uh, the, you can't do everything on one retreat. Uh, but it's very beautiful and very uh, full of meaning, this particular passage if you draw out the meanings uh, and one of the things that you will see there just very briefly comment on it uh, is that uh, there is nothing there about the supernormal powers uh, yeah it doesn't say that the buddha flies through the air and it walks on water like jesus or anything like that this is kind of uh, irrelevant yeah this doesn't matter uh, this is not what buddhism really is about uh, uh, Buddhism is about the Buddha having understood reality. That is what matters. He's awakened. Here they use the word enlightened, but I prefer awakened. You awaken to the way things actually are. That is what matters with the Buddha. You have this. We have this teacher who understands happiness and suffering to the very core. 
what it means. He understands the human predicament. Uh, he's able to give a teaching that is true, universally true for all beings, regardless of where they are. Even not just all kinds of human beings, but even for devas, yeah, even for beings beyond the human realm. Uh, all beings can relate to these teachings. Uh, and that is what makes the Buddha special, not any kind of super-duper you know, uh, s things that he might do. Uh, is, can the Buddha walk on water? Maybe he can. I, you know, <laughs> according to the suttas, he's supposed to be able to do that. And and uh, but it's a, it's a side issue, uh, and this becomes sometimes the most important thing in Buddhist circles. You know, supernormal powers and this kind of things. But in the suttas, uh, it's a side issue. It's like a consequence of developing your mind, uh, but it's not what anyone is aiming for. He doesn't mean anything. Someone might be able to do supernormal powers and yet be not be all that wise. Uh, yeah. This is one of the things. Devadatta is a classic example. He was someone with supernormal powers. He's described like that in the Vinaya, and yet he was obviously deluded. So uh, these things are not so important. They're pretty cool, I have to admit, yeah, if you can do these kind of things. But uh, <laughs> it would be nice you know, if you saw someone flying through the air. It would be kind of nice. Yeah. Or, or disappearing into the ground or something like that. It's kind of, it's in one sense, it's, it's, it's entertaining, yeah? But that's really what it is. It's just entertainment. Uh, and that's why people enjoy it. Uh. So this is what the Buddha is. He's the supreme teacher because he understands the human predicament to the very core. Uh. He understands all possible births and rebirths and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, that is what makes the Buddha special. But he's a human being. That's the other thing that is important to remember about the Buddha. He's not some universal principle or universal consciousness so he's not divine he's not kind of different he's like one of one among other human beings the only difference is that he has taken the human potential to the very maximum possibility to the highest kind of uh, possibility and that is what makes the buddha special uh. so these are some of the ways to think about the buddha uh. but he's the, like the ultimate teacher this is what makes him so special so let's leave it at that, because otherwise we get carried away. Um, so um, then, uh, once you have that awakening of the Buddha, the next thing he does is he declares this world uh, with its gods, its maras, its brahmans, brahmas uh, this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its, uh, its gods and its people, uh, princes, I think is wrong, it should be gods and people, which he himself realized with direct knowledge. Uh, he teaches the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and the right phrasing. And he reveals a holy life, a brahmacharya, that is utterly perfect and pure, that is utterly complete and pure, is a better translation. Now it is good to see such arahants. <laughs> it is good to see such, such arahants. Yeah, you agree? It's pretty good, yeah? <laughs> And um, so this is the thing. They, uh, this is kind of India. They had this idea that spiritual people are worth seeing. Uh, and India is a bit like that today. It's very kind of spiritual. Lots of religions and spirituality going on. Uh. And uh, so here you have the Buddha teaching. Uh, yeah, And he declares this wor world with, with its various realms. And uh, many of these gods are gods that existed already uh, in the Brahmanical religion, Mara and Brahma. So he kind of incorporates those gods into his own teaching, in a sense. Uh, and he knows these generations. In other words, he understands the recluses and Brahmins, that he understands their teachings uh, 
what these teachings are, whether they lead anywhere, uh, and he can uh, uh, criticize them or, or to or, or if you like elucidate them, whether they work or not according to the Dhamma, etc. Uh, and uh, the Dhamma is good in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Yeah, Kalyana, Addi Kalyana, Madja Kalyana, uh, Pariyosana Kalyana. And uh, the idea good means that it is a it adds to your life. It brings positive things out from the very beginning. It's not you have lots of pain in the beginning and then you have lots of happiness to the end. It's not like that. Yeah, it is positive all the way through. It's not like the um, like the um, uh, self mortification or self torture. You torture yourself to the max and then suddenly bang, you're freed and then you're happy. That's not really how it works in Buddhism. It's happy all the way along. Yeah, this is one of the nice things about this uh, Buddhist teachings. Uh, with the right meaning and the right phrasing, and he reveals a holy life that is utterly complete and pure. There's nothing missing here. You don't need the Abhidhamma. That's what it says there uh, in, in, pre in parentheses. Yeah? <laughs> it's actually complete as it is. Uh. So it's good to see such arahants. And it's a really nice little phrase. Yeah, It's good because when you see the arahants of the world, you understand that there is something more that is possible. Uh, you see with your, uh, you see kind of the, almost like the physical expression of the Dhamma in somebody. Uh, yeah, when you see someone who's very inspiring, uh, you feel, you get this feeling that there is something higher in this world, uh, something that each one of us can possibly attain. Uh, and that is, uh, one thing is to read the suttas and, and see the theory, and that can also be inspiring. But actually seeing the living example is often even more powerful, yeah, because uh, uh, it can be a bit dry when you read things, uh, but seeing someone special is like it really opens up your eyes. Wow, is that possible to be like that? You, how come you never get angry? How come you're always full of energy and sparkling? Uh, people like you know, Ajahn Ganha and Ajahn Brahm is not far behind. These kind of people, yeah, it's like whoa, what is you know, this is this is just marvelous, uh, and you understand that there is something more in this world than what we normally see in ordinary life. Uh, it's incredibly useful and very rare. It's very hard to find these things in the world. Yeah, and sometimes you should feel so fortunate that maybe you are in, you know, have connection to some some such people. And once you have that connection, you you actually consider yourself very lucky because this is a. Uh, the thing, one of the things that help you forward on the path, and we'll come back to this in a second because it is described more in the sutta later on. Uh, <coughs> so that combination of having a living example and having the suttas, those two things together, is a very powerful combination. Uh, then the Brahmin householders of Opasada set forth from Opasada in groups and bands and headed towards the God's Grove, the Sala Tree Grove. And then there's kind of a long kind of thing in between. I just kind of put a few dots in there just to contract a little bit. Otherwise, we would need a much longer retreat to read everything here. So now on that occasion, the Blessed One was seated, finishing some amiable talk with some very senior Brahmins. Then the Brahmin student, uh, Kapatika, said to the Blessed One here, this is like this young fellow is only about 16 years old or something uh, and he's kind of breaking in and kind of you know talking when, when these senior brahmins are speaking here uh, and uh, they let him speak yeah, which is interesting it is not uh, it is not so hierarchical in those days. even if you are young if you are considered that you know what you're talking about uh, you are allowed to kind of speak up and and take your take part in the conversation 
So this is what he says. Master Gautama, in regard to the ancient Brahmanic hymns that have come down through oral tradition, preserved in the collections, the Brahmins come to this to the definite conclusion. Only this is true. Anything else is false or wrong. What does Master Gautama say about this? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> How then... How then, Bharadvaja, among the Brahmins, is there even a single Brahmin who says thus, I know this, I see this, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In other words, what the Buddha is asking him, is there anyone who has any real insight? Yeah, Are they just kind of parroting this because they have heard it from before? Or is there anyone who actually really understands what they're talking about? Yeah. Does anyone understand what they're talking about? No, Master Gautama, no one understands what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm just adding a bit for effect there, just to make it more clear. How then, Bharadvaja, among the Brahmins, is there even a single teacher, or a single teacher's teacher, back to seven generations of teachers, who says thus, I know this, I see this, only this is true, anything else is false. No, Master Gautama, there's no one who knows anything, really. <coughs> How then, Bharadvaja, the ancient Brahmin seers, the creators of the hymns, the composers of the hymns, whose ancient hymns that were formerly chanted, uttered and compiled, the Brahmins nowadays still chant and repeat, repeating what was spoken and reciting what was recited. That is... Uh, ah... Ah, amak, amaka, there's a mistake, that should, shouldn't be an H, it should be something else, but anyway, doesn't matter. Amaka, or Vamaka, Vamadeva, Vesamitta, uh, Yamataggi, Angirasa, Bharadvaja, Vasetta, Kasapa, and Bhagu. Did even these ancient Brahmin seers say thus, we know this, we see this, only this is true, anything else is false? No, Master Gautama. So, Bharadvaja, it seems that among the Brahmins, there's not even a single Brahmin who says thus, I know this, I see this, this is tr only this is true, everything else is false. And among the Brahmins, there is not even a single teacher, or a teacher's teacher, back to the seventh generations. And even among the ancient Brahmin seers, the creator and composers of the hymns, even these did not say that we know this, we see this. Suppose... Bharadvaja, they were a file of blind men, each in touch with the one in front of him. The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, and the last one does not see. So too, Bharadvaja, in regard to the statement, the Brahmins seem to be like a file of blind men. The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, and the last one does not see. What do you think, Bharadvaja, that being so? Does not faith of the Brahmins turn out to be groundless? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but this is kind of interesting because uh, it is interesting because uh, this shows us where we should place our faith, what are good grounds for faith and confidence, and how we should deal with these things. Uh, so it's actually quite interesting. Uh, yeah, it is, this applies not just to the ancient. Uh, uh, society in India and the Brahmins and the Buddhists, but this applies also in the present day. Yeah. So we're going to see as we go through this how this how this applies and how to think about this. Uh.
And then this young fellow, he says, the Brahmins honor this not only out of faith, Master Gautama, they also honor it as oral tradition. Bharadvaja, first you took your stand on faith, now you speak of oral tradition. There are these five things, Bharadvaja, that may turn out in two different ways, here and now. Two different ways means that they are either true or false. What five? Faith, approval, oral tradition, reasoned reflection, and reflective acceptance of a view. These five things may turn out in two different ways here and now. Something may be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be empty, hollow and false. But something else may not not be fully accepted out of faith, and yet it may be factual, true and unmistaken. And the same thing for all the other ones. It may be fully approved of, may be well transmitted, well reflected, well, well contemplated, well reflected upon, yet it may be empty, hollow and false. But something else may not have these qualities, yet they may be factual, true and unmistaken. Under these conditions, it is not proper for a wise man who preserves the truth to come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. So this is uh, interesting, uh, this is because it says something about how we should think about the world as well, as Buddhists as well. Yeah, you have faith in something, you approve of it, or oral tradition. Now these are all uh, things, yeah, like it's like you are a Buddhist. Well, actually, this is a little bit how we operate, isn't it? Uh, you have faith, and part of what we have faith in is an oral tradition. Uh, comes from the past, you get given the Majjhima read this and, and believe it. As, you know, sometimes that's what you... Has anyone ever get told that? Uh, no, maybe not. But anyway, we, we suggest that you read these things, yeah? And then you may believe it or not. Uh, but uh, so in Buddhism, we are in a similar kind of situation uh, where we have faith uh, and we have these ancient teachings, yeah? And then how do we actually deal with this? Well, we don't know whether these teachings are true or not. Uh, initially, uh, we don't have any idea. So it is just faith in this oral tradition. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with having faith, but it's good to, as the Buddha says here, it may turn out two ways. It may be true or it may be false. And this is why it is, so, you know, one of the interesting things about the suttas is precisely that they are 2,500 years older. So how much faith can you place in something that has been passed down 2,500 years older? Has it not been changed along the way? How do we know that this is the word of the Buddha anyway? Did the Buddha really say these things? Or were there some other kind of dodgy character who said these things? Uh, it doesn't look like a dodgy character when you read it. It looks like someone has got the act together. But, you know, who, how do we know? And this is, you know, one of those uh, very important things. And, and part of the answer to that is, of course, to study this text and find out how they work and whether they have integrity or not. Uh, uh, whether you do kind of you you study them using linguistic criteria to decide on their age, whether they are, you know, coming from the same time, whether they are certain parts that are later than others, and all of that you can do, and a lot some of that has been done before. And if you do that, uh, I would say generally speaking, you 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 become quite 
confident that these are real teachings because they have that integrity, they have that completeness about them. They seem to be from roughly the time of the Buddha. They seem to come from one person because they are all very coherent and they hold together very nicely here. So I think there are good grounds for that. But we, how, how do we, can be, how, how sure can we be? You can never be absolutely sure. So you say you have faith, uh, but you don't really know. Yeah. So this is one of the things that is important uh, and the next thing the Buddha says here, he says that uh, this is one way of having, you know, of accepting something on faith. The next one is, uh, he says, you have, it, he used the, the, the term cogitated. It just means that you think about it or reflect on it, yeah? Or you, uh, you, uh, you gain a reflective acceptance, um, reflective acceptance of a viewer, yeah, reason, cogitation. So these are like kind of using logic, yeah? trying to be logical about things, yeah, thinking about the suttas. And this is something that we should also do, of course. Uh, you reflect on the suttas, you see if they make sense, if they fit with your personal experience, whether they are, you know, logically, whether they're consistent and all of these kind of things. Uh, and that is also part of what we you, you do. Uh. But uh, uh, the problem is that uh, logic uh, itself may be flawed yeah and uh, one of the important things about logic is that the logic of something depends on the assumptions that you make yeah you, whatever assumptions you make the logic that you build upon those assumptions uh, even if the logic is flawless if the assumptions are wrong uh, the outcome of that logic is going to be flawed because the uh, uh, the basic axioms that you use uh, are 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 problematic yeah the, you're starting with something wrong and this is very important in buddhism and the reason why it is important in buddhism is that uh, buddhism looks at the world in a way yeah the suttas or the buddha looks at the world in a way that is different from everyone else the buddha says we're all starting with the wrong assumptions yeah because we all start with a sense of self that is a wrong assumption and because everyone starts with the wrong assumption whatever theories you build on that wrong assumption are also going to be false. So you start with the assumption of a self, then you get eternalism, then you get annihilationism. This is where these ideas we talked about yesterday come from. They come from a wrong idea of thinking about the world. So the Buddha says even logic you have to be careful with. We have to use it, but you have to be careful with it because it may turn out to be wrong. That's what he's saying here. So in Buddhism, the in the Buddhism, in the final kind of analysis, uh, what you come back to in Buddhism is always experience. Uh, experience is the only uh, real source of knowledge that you can trust. Uh, yeah, if you, you if you are unbiased and if you have insight, it comes back ultimately to experience. Uh, of course, not all experience is trustworthy. So you have to be careful there as well, uh, because if you are deluded, you're going to get it wrong. Uh, but uh, ultimately, things have to come from experience. That is what the Buddha did. Uh, and that is the ultimate source. And then, once you have the experience, then you can apply logic, you can apply these other factors in here afterwards. Uh. So, it's, it's in, uh, so um, yeah, anyway, it, it, it is fascinating. And the Buddha here says all of these things can turn out one way or the other way. Uh. So, um, what then? And... Uh, then uh, this uh, this young Brahmin says, but Master Gautama, in what way is there the preservation of truth? How does one preserve truth? We ask Master Gautama about the preservation of truth. 
Yeah, because this is what the Brahmins want to do. They want to preserve the truth. That's what they are all about. They're about memorizing these ancient scriptures uh, and then preserving them. And now he wants to know, well, how do we actually do that if all of these things are so uh, uncertain? Huh? And then the Buddha says, if a person has faith, Bharadvaja, he preserves truth by saying, my faith is thus. This is my faith. But it has not yet come to the definite conclusion only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way, Bharadvaja, there is the preservation of truth. But as yet, there is no discovery of truth. If a person approves of something, yeah, all of these things, if, if, if he receives an oral tradition, if he has reached a conclusion based on re reasoned contemplation or reflection, if he gains a reflective acceptance of a view, he preserves truth when he says, my reflective acceptance of a view is thus. Mm. But he does not yet, I, yeah, my, my reflective acceptance of view is like this. It's, I don't know if anyone would say that in real life, but anyway, it, it sounds a bit strange if you said that, yeah? <laughs> this is my reflective acceptance of a view. But anyway, that's just the translation here. But it does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way too, Bharadvaja, there is the preservation of truth, uh, but as yet there is no discovery of truth. So, and, and uh, this is a good reminder to all of us. Yeah, There are so many things in life that we don't really know, especially in Buddhism. It is obvious you read the suttas, you don't know anything about supernormal powers, or maybe you do, or maybe I'm underestimating you, but I'm ass assuming, <laughs> assuming you don't know anything about the supernormal powers uh, and most people don't know anything about rebirth, yeah? Uh, and most people don't know anything about the laws of kamma. Uh, we don't know anything about enlightenment experience or profound insight into non-self. Uh, most people don't even know about, you know, deep states of samadhi. It's quite rare for people to have really deep states of samadhi. So all of these things are, in the end, they are based on some degree of confidence and faith, uh, yeah? So, okay, you accept that. Uh, yeah, if someone challenges you, you say, okay, I don't I don't necessarily know, but this is my faith. I have faith for, well, why? Well, because uh, the Buddha's word is coherent, it all fits together. I, I've met people who kind of inspire confidence in these things, etc., etc. So, you, you know, but you don't really need to argue your point. You don't need to defend yourself because you realize, well, actually, you don't really know anyway. So how, why should you defend it? You can defend a little bit, uh, but not too much. It's not worth getting into an argument over her. It, this does not mean that you allow other people to persuade you. That's not what it means at all. Uh, you know, faith is a very valid thing to have faith in something. Uh, so other people may have even less of a clue. Yeah, they may be completely clueless as to what is going on. So it doesn't mean you should take on their views. Uh, it just means that you are more humble about your own understanding. That's really all it means. Uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a, a bit stubborn about what you believe in. Yeah, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. So uh, that is uh, it's quite nice because it creates for a more kind of even life when we don't have to argue about positions and politics and whatever. And we can just go more with the flow of things. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, uh, you can argue a little bit, uh, yeah, but not in a kind of heated way. To, so it gets problematic for you. Uh. So this is, I think, part of the outcome here. We think about these things in the right way. Uh, and then we are uh, doing, the, the, doing the right thing here. Uh. So, um, then 
this Brahmin student. He says, uh, in that way, Master Bharadvaja, there is the preservation of truth. But in what way, Master Gautama, is there discovery of truth? And uh, uh, here, Bharadvaja, a monk, may live, may be living in dependence on some village or town. Then a householder or householder's son goes to him and investigates him in regard to three kinds of qualities. In regard to qualities based on desire, in regard to qualities based on ill will, and in regard to qualities based on confusion. Are there, this is, and this is how he investigates, are there in this venerable one any qualities based on desire such that with his mind obsessed by those qualities, while not knowing, he might say, I know, and while not seeing, he might say, I see, and he might urge others to act in a way that would lead to their harm and suffering for a long time. As he investigates him, he comes to know there are no such qualities based on greed in this venerable one. The bodily behavior of the uh, uh, and verbal behavior of this venerable one are not those of one affected by desire. And the Dhamma that this venerable one teaches is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. This Dhamma cannot easily be taught by one affected by desire. So this is how you uh, check people out. Yeah, That's basically what the Buddha is saying here. And uh, this interesting because a very similar way of investigating is also found in the sutta called the Vimangsaka Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 47, I think it is, uh, where the Buddha says that you should use this kind of investigation on the Buddha himself. Uh, yeah? So here it does not refer to the Buddha, here it refers more generally to anyone. Uh, yeah? If you're going to you have anyone as your teacher, uh, or you're going to listen to someone's advice, uh, then this is what you should do first of all. Uh, you should watch them, observe them. Do they have qualities that actually makes them worthy of placing confidence in them as a teacher? This is how you do it. Uh, do they have these uh, qualities? Uh, yeah. And uh, so this is an important point uh, because uh, it is important because the, it should be uh, there should be a harmony between how you teach uh, and how you are as a person, ideally. Uh, yeah. Uh, of course, when you teach the word of the Buddha, it's a bit different because you're really placing your faith in the Buddha himself. Uh, but uh, in some ways, it is still true, uh, especially if you give teachings that are beyond the word of the Buddha. So this is uh, this is what you do. So you uh, look for these things, and you and one of the things the Buddha is saying by this is that we should trust our own judgment about these things. Uh, we shouldn't think that we are incapable of seeing these things. Uh, we should trust our own judgment. Uh, and uh, nobody else can actually make that judgment for you anyway. Uh, I've heard kind of heard people say, "Oh, yeah, I don't trust my own judgment. I'm going to follow other people's judgment." Uh, but uh, how do you know that you should follow that person's judgment? Uh, who decides that? Well, you decide that, right? Uh, so it's exactly the same. It doesn't make any difference. You still have your judgment at the end of the day anyway. That matters. So uh, I, either way, your ju judgment is going to be the final say in these things. Uh, so Buddha says, "Trust your judgment." Uh, but be humble, uh, be careful, don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Uh, don't assume that someone is a 
scallywag. I used that word yesterday. People were a bit c confounded by that word, I think, or somebody was. Uh, I don't mean that in the necessarily in the bad sense, but don't assume that someone is bad straight away here. Yeah, But also don't assume that they are a saint just because everyone says so. Uh, withhold your judgment a little bit. Uh, watch carefully here, uh, and then uh, you will uh, uh, gradually gain a uh, proper confidence, or you will reject the person because you don't feel that there is any confidence to be had for this person. Uh, that is the right way, uh, yeah? and then you are will be on the right track. Yeah? Don't follow the crowd too much. Uh, don't be a sheep. Yeah, bah, bah. Okay, do do do. Go along this way. Be the black sheep. If you're going to be a sheep, be a black sheep, uh, or be a gray, maybe a gray sheep. Yeah, somewhere in between. Uh. Is there anything about gray sheep anywhere? I, I, I like the idea of being a gray sheep because you're not really black, but you are. Not, okay, whatever. So, <coughs> so this is uh, uh, the right way according to this particular sutta. And also interesting, you also listen to the Dhamma. Is it profound? Yeah. So the Dhamma is both profound and nobody is being led astray and the person has these qualities. All of these things coming together, then it starts to become powerful and it impacts on you in a powerful way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when he has investigated him and has seen that he is purified from qualities based on desire, he next investigates him in regard to uh, qualities based on ill will. Are there in this venerable one any qualities based on ill will, such that with his mind obsessed by those qualities, uh, he might uh, you know, urge others to act in a way that is bad for themselves? Uh, and as he investigates him in this way, he comes to know uh, there are no such states or qualities based on ill will in this venerable one. Uh, his bodily and verbal behavior are not those of someone affected by ill will. And the Dhamma that this Venerable One teaches is profound, etc., and to be experienced by the wise. This Dhamma cannot easily be taught by one affected by ill will. Yeah, Ill will is easier to see than greed often. It's pretty obvious sometimes. So if someone uh, expresses ill will, then you know it's good to have a bit of doubt at least. Start with that. When he has investigated him and has seen that he has purified from qualities based on hate, next he investigates him in regard to qualities based on confusion or delusion. Confusion is one aspect of delusion. Are there in this venerable any such qualities based on confusion? So that he might end up saying silly things that harm other people. And as he investigates him, he comes to know there are no such qualities based on confusion in this venerable one. Uh, his bodily and verbal behavior are not those of one affected by confusion. Uh, and the Dhamma of this venerable one teaches is profound. Hard to see, uh, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced of the wise. Uh, by the wise, this Dhamma cannot easily be taught by one affected by confusion or delusion. So that is the beginning point. Yeah, this is the starting point of this uh, uh, of this whole path. When he has investigated him and has seen that he is purified from states based on confusion, then he places faith in him. Yeah, this, you don't really have to 
it's not it's not something that you have to do it just happens automatically uh, yeah you gain faith in someone like that uh, filled with faith uh, he visits him uh, and uh, or he approaches him and then he visits him uh, and then because he visits him he gives ear yeah he, he, he in other words he listens uh, and when you listen you hear the dhamma having heard the dhamma you memorize it because in those days everything was oral uh, and then after memorizing it, you examine the meaning of the teaching you have memorized. And when you examine the meaning, you gain a reflective acceptance of those teachings. Yeah. And so at this point, how far have we got so far? This is all. Remember, all these teachings are just variations on the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah. So this, this also explains the Noble Eightfold Path. It may not have occurred to you that this is the noble effort, but it is. All the teachings are similar. They all have a similar kind of structure. So now, finally, we have arrived at right view. Yeah, Re Gaining a reflective acceptance of those teachings means that you are accepting the teachings. It means that you are accepting the view of the Buddha. Yeah. So now you have right view. Now we have arrived at the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, and you can see here how it leads up to that first factor. So it gives an expanded idea of what it means to gain the first factor. Yeah, it is not as simple as just having right view. It can involve a lot of work, yeah, or a lot of listening and reflecting to even arrive at that right view. This whole thing comes beforehand. First, you have to observe the teacher and all of these kind of things, and then right view happens as a consequence. So right view is not as simple as it may seem. Yeah, it involves a lot. Uh, so what is uh, uh, what is uh, interesting here is uh, how the idea of uh, reflection is really emphasized. First, you hear the teaching, yeah. Then, as you hear it, you also memorize it, which will mean that you repeat it to memorize it. So you, or, or you can say you read it many times, or you listen to it many times, and then when you listen to it many times, then you examine the meaning. This is always a very important part of the Buddhist path, this idea of examining the meaning. You try to understand, what does the Buddha really say here? How does this fit together with his other teachings? How does it apply to my own practice and my life? Does it really apply to me? It, does it make sense from, a kind of from my experience or not? Uh, you reflect on it. You know, and then as you gradually reflect on it, this is a very important part of the idea of Buddhism, then gradually, 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 you gain the reflective acceptance of these teachings. Uh, and that reflective acceptance itself has many different degrees, uh, yeah, or degrees of clarity. You may reflect a little bit upon it and you may gain an initial acceptance, uh, and then you reflect more, you practice, and it's strange. As you practice and as you purify yourself uh, and your mind becomes more clear, it is as if that acceptance becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. You start to see it in new ways. Uh. And this is one of the reasons why every time I teach a retreat, uh, I teach the same suttas. Uh, yeah? Some people say, oh no, not the same suttas again. Oh, I heard this before. <laughs> But uh, actually, remember that you, the, it won't be the same suttas uh, because you have changed in the meantime. Uh, so actually, what you're hearing, you're hearing something slightly different. Uh, it goes in in a deeper way, in a different way. Uh, yeah. So actually, it may not matter so much. The most important thing is that you don't allow yourself to get bored. Uh, yeah. The moment you think, "Oh no, not again," well, that, that at that point already you kind of that's that's where the the problem lies. Yeah. So maybe I should have. Maybe I should 
have new suttas just to have compassion on people so they don't think like that yeah, because it's easy to think like that uh, but um, so maybe maybe next year I'll do some really random suttas uh. am I coming next year? maybe I will maybe we'll see what happens we'll see what happens next year <laughs> and certain uh. so uh, yeah so this is how it goes uh, yeah and so this is actually very important you go deeper and deeper into things it's strange how these things kind of open up with the practice and they keep on opening up opening up opening up it's Ajahn Brahm is the thousand petal lotus opening up revealing the jewel eventually in the center what is the jewel again emptiness yeah there's nothing there empty this is the jewel that's kind of an exciting jewel but but um this is what happens until you become a stream enter. That is when this reveals itself and finally you see what it is like. Yeah. So it is a bit like having that Zen mind, beginner's mind, that you may remember that book from the 1970s or whenever it was. Uh, this idea that you always think th about things in a fresh way. Yeah, You try to come at it from new angles. Uh, you don't allow the Dhamma to become stale. If it becomes stale, then it doesn't do anything for you anymore. Yeah. So this whole idea of... Uh, coming back to it yeah and that's why this morning we talked about the mountaintop and the rain coming down yeah the raining 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 well this is what this is this rain uh, always looking at this from different uh, ways and angles uh. so um, and this is also why it is nice to sometimes hear teachings from different uh, monks as well yeah or different nuns or different lay people or whatever because sometimes they give slightly different angles on things uh, yeah and as long as their teachings are reliable, I mean, they have to be reliable, otherwise you have a problem, because they have to be good teachings. But assuming that they are good teachings, uh, it can be interesting to hear things from different angles. Uh. But uh, don't, make, don't have too many teachers either, because sometimes you just get completely confused if you have too many teachers. You don't know up from down and left from right anymore. Uh. Oh no, they're all contradicting each other. Who should I have? Who should I, <laughs> who should I believe? That that's also can also be a problem. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, anyway. So you gain a reflective acceptance of the view. So you have a right view. What happens when you have a right view? Well, what, once you have a right view, the whole purpose of right view, again, is that your values change in life. Uh, you start to think about life in a new way. Uh, your priorities change. What you want to do I is different from what it was before. And it happens gradually over time. Gradually, gradually, gradually over time. Uh, and uh, for that reason, because of that change in uh, Purpose, yes, Samma Sankappa, the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, that change in purpose then leads you to uh, to chanda, the desire to do these new things. Uh, yeah, that the path is about, and that chanda here is uh, here the, called zeal. Yeah, um, uh, Adan Sudato has enthusiasm, which is quite a very actually quite a nice translation. You get enthusiasm, but you are enthusiastic about things to do with the Dhamma and that is when you start practicing right speech, right action, right livelihood uh, and even right effort. Yeah, You start to try to have more metta in your life, uh, less anger and ill will. Uh, you start to be more, a bit more uh, generous, generous in your actions. You become more uh, soft and compassionate. You are more gentle. You have more time for people. All of these things happen uh, as a consequence of this. This is the zeal, the chanda to do what is right. Uh, yeah, so the interesting thing is, again, the whole Noble Eightfold Path is right there, yeah, embedded in the teaching, which lo actually does look very different, uh, but it isn't. Uh. And then you apply your will. This is a strange Pali word called usahati, which basically means that you apply yourself or you make an effort or something like that. Yeah, very similar to 
the uh, idea of, uh, again, of right effort uh, on the Noble Eightfold Path, the six, factor, uh, six factors. And, and then uh, an interesting one is that when you have made a right effort, you scrutinize. Uh, yeah, and the Pali word for that is uh, uh, tuleti. Uh, and tuleti literally means to measure or to weigh things up. Yeah, to weigh up. And uh, this is something that you will see also in the Dhamma. For example, Satipatthana practice uh, is a lot about this kind of weighing up thing. Yeah, Satipatthana is all about understanding uh, what is going on inside of yourself. It's about understanding the five hindrances, the seven awakening factors, all of this. Uh, and it specifically says, if you look at the seven bojangas, uh, the first bojanga is the Satisambojanga, the second one is the Dhammavichya Sambojanga. Dhammavichya means investigation of dhammas of internal qualities yeah that's what it means uh, and that's it investigation of internal qualities very similar to here to this tuleti to weigh things up uh, yeah you look at yourself you see whether things are heading in the right direction you compare it with the suttas you weigh up your progress uh, and you, st you start to understand what is happening inside of you at the end of each meditation you ask yourself well why did it work this time uh, and as I mentioned before, it's very simple. Yeah, it's not something complex that you're looking for. Very simple thing. Well, this time I relaxed a bit more. I was able just to sit back and allow things to be. Or I had a bit more metta at the beginning. I thought about people in this way. That's why I had metta. Yeah? Things like that. That is what you're looking for. Simple little things that then enable your meditation to happen as a consequence. So you measure it up. You scrutinize. You weigh things and this is what this is about. Always coming back to the suttas as the standard for how you move forward. Uh, this is how the suttas become this endless uh, source. Uh, yeah, this fountainhead of uh, delight and in, and uh, and information and also inspiration to keep you on the right track, heading in the right direction. Uh. And then, as you scrutinize in this way, as you weigh things up, uh, then you strive. Yeah, you continue striving. Here is. Uh, Padahati, uh, I think, uh, is, is, is re again related to the sixth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And here, the sixth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path really includes all the last factors. It also includes the uh, right mindfulness. Yeah, It also includes Samma Samadhi, because right effort can include all of those things. If you look at some of the suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya, it says that uh, right effort, for example, the effort to increase wholesome states that have already there uh, that is the development of the bojangas the awakening factors which is samadhi so that can be included in right effort uh, uh, vaya, samma vayama samma padana yeah so uh, right effort in the broadest sense includes all the last aspects of the buddhist path uh, this is th what you actually find in the suttas so this is what you see here as well so there you are whole noble eightfold path from the viewpoint of investigation and effort uh, that's all you really have in there investigation effort the whole thing based on that but uh, everything is actually there uh. so uh, what happens then yeah what happens then is the following here uh, he realizes or or he or she realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by tr penetrating it with wisdom. Yeah, 
Paramatta Satcha is the only place in the suttas where Paramatta Satcha occurs. Uh, Paramatta is like supreme or the highest. Uh, Satcha is truth, yeah? Like the Arya Satcha, the noble truths. Uh. So you discover that, you see that by penetrating with wisdom. Uh. And uh, so that is become means becoming a stream entry. That's what it means. Uh, yeah, You see the truth uh, for the first time. Uh, you understand the four noble truths, including the path. Uh, you know what the path is uh, as a consequence of this. Uh. So it's good news. Uh. Yeah, that's where you end up. Uh. You end up with seeing the supreme truth by following this practice. Uh. And uh, then the Buddha says, actually, before I say that, I should very briefly comment on this idea you realize with the body yeah how can you realize the supreme truth with the body surely the supreme truth is realized in the mind I, I, you know how can any truth be realized in the body yeah. and um, <laughs> uh, this shows you how careful you have to be with translations this is a very misleading translation it's impossible it's obviously impossible to realize the truth with the body it can't be done uh, and uh, the reason why he has translated in this way is because he has th the word behind this is kaya. Kaya is often in the sutta as does mean body, but the root meaning of the word kaya is just a group of things. It's like like a kanda. It's an aggregate. It's a you know a n large number of kind of things that come together. So, for example, in the Anapanasati Sutta, the breath is called the kaya because it is a uh, a grouping of all possible breaths coming together. They're called the kaya of breaths, the body of breaths. Uh, and it's very similar to English. In English also, body means a collection of things, uh, a body of evidence and all that kind of stuff, yeah? Corporate body, whatever you call it. Uh, so these are a collection of things, and it's exactly the same thing in the suttas. Uh, so here, when it says you realize with the body, it means that you realize, basically it means you realize with your personality, with your person. Yeah, It could be the physical body, it could be the mind, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But it means that you have a direct realization. That's really what it means. An immediate realization. There's a dis dif difference between a inferred thing. Yeah, You infer something because you know from the evidence that it must be like this. And the direct realization here. You may infer that there is a deep state of samadhi is possible to attain because you have gone a long way on the path, but actually realizing it yourself, that is called direct experience. Yeah? And direct experience is what Buddhism really is all about. So when it says you realize with the body, really what it means, it means direct experience. You have direct experience of this. This is a very important point because uh, there's always a lot of arguments about these kind of things uh, whether kaya can mean body or it can mean something broader. Uh, but it's very obvious to me that it must mean something broader. Sakaya ditti is a personality view. Yeah, the view that there is an existing being, essential being in each one of us. Uh, it's called sakaya ditti. Sakaya, sa is existing. Kaya is again body or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but then, when you see how it is defined, it is defined as thinking that uh, consciousness is permanent. That's Sakaya Ditti. So it cannot refer to the physical body. Yeah, It specifically says con consciousness is permanent or whatever. So, ergo, Kaya has this very broad quality. And that's very clear from many different places. It's an important point if you, are, if you really like to get into the details of the suttas. Uh, because uh, uh, it's very, it can, you know... Mostly the suttas are easy, straightforward to read, but sometimes there are tricky passages that you have to interpret in the right way. Uh, like, for example, in the um, 
a third jhana, it says you realize the third jhana with the body. Yeah. And many people, if you take that literally to mean the physical body, well then you will interpret the third jhana in the wrong way. That's why it is problematic. Yeah. Okay, anyway, that is a little bit of a side issue. Yeah. So um, that is uh, the uh, realization of the highest truth. You become a stream enter here. Yeah. And then the Buddha says that in this way, Bharadvaja, there is the discovery of truth. In this way, one discovers truth, etc. But as yet, there is no final arrival at truth. <laughs> yeah, if you are a stream enter, you haven't come to the final highest point yet. So there's more to be done. In what way, Master Gautama? No, sorry, in that way, Master Gautama, there is the discovery of truth. But in what way, Master Gautama, is there the final arrival of truth? In what way does one finally arrive at truth? We ask Master Gautama about the final arrival at truth. The final arrival at truth, Bharadvaja, lies in the repetition, the development and cultivation of those same things. In this way, Bharadvaja, there is the final arrival at truth. In this way, one finally arrives at truth. In this way, we describe the final arrival at truth. <laughs> Very repetitive, as it's saying the same thing again and again. So, uh, but, uh, so this is what happens once you become a stream enterer. Yeah, you have internalized the Dhamma. You know the path, you know how to what to do, and this is why your virtue is said to be perfect when you become a stream mentor. You know it lies down the path of peace and quiet. That is where you will see things according to reality. You understand all of that because you have internalized this. You have seen it, as it says here, yeah, directly and immediately. So you know what is going on. And so from then on, all you have to do is just follow that same path, yeah, the same practice. Do these things again and again and again, and one day, bang, you become the arahant. And then everything is given up. You have come, you have realized the third noble truth, the ending of suffering as a consequence. So there you are. So that is one way for you to look at the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah, It's a little bit different from the standard view. And that's why I thought I would read out this sutta just to give you an alternative look at things. Uh, um, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path is uh, is very interesting and I have taught the Noble Eightfold Path many times before on retreats. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting to look at the different view. So uh, on the next two days, we have two days left of this retreat, I will be looking at in more detail about how to deal with the mind specifically. Uh, how to think about things, how to reflect on things uh, so as to deal with defilements and problems uh, so that we can overcome those mental problems and we hopefully make more progress on the path as a consequence. So that is all for now. So please, as always, continue, have a good time and have a nice cup of tea or whatever and we'll see you back again at 6 o'clock.